following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. within a particular ecosystem needs to have that 
it was sustenance and it's survival, right? Not for, for its uh, uh, sustainability, uh, a particular ecosystem to maintain good order and good health. And so, for example, if you are, uh, have a bright idea to eliminate from a particular ecosystem its, say, predatory ferocious creatures, let's pick on the hyena because, well, most of us don't like hyenas. I've never liked hyenas. I'm too tough on the Lion King. All right, so hyenas. And you come and say, okay, I'm going to eradicate all the hyenas. Guess what will happen to that particular ecosystem? It's likely that it will implode. It will be thrown into a crazy downward spiral. Why? Well, because that predator, the hyena, kept its prey in check. And yet if you remove hyenas, that particular species will overpopulate. And if that species is a plant eater, guess what? It's going to eat too many plants, which means other animals that depend on plant life for its life and sustenance will die out. And so essentially you've screwed up that particular ecosystem with your bright idea. Hey, we don't like hyenas. We're going to clear that ecosystem of them all. And what's my point? My point is this. There is such a thing as a scriptural or gospel ecosystem, whereby the truths of the Christian message, the truths of the gospel, hang together. They hold together in a balance, in an ecosystem, as it were, a community of truth, interconnected, interdependent uh, truths that need each other. And so to downplay the predatory aspects, if you may, of Christianity, the judgment of God, hell, uh, the wrath of God, is to do irreparable harm to the other aspects of the gospel, the, the good aspects, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the gentleness of God, the tenderheartedness of God. Do you understand? Listen to what Tim Keller says on this. He says a lot on this, and it's really, really helpful. He says these words. In the end, the loss, listen, the loss of the doctrines of hell, that's what we're thinking about this morning, Judgment and the holiness of God does irreparable damage to our deepest comforts, particularly our understanding of God's grace and love and of human dignity and our value to him. Listen to how he concludes. He says, to preach the good news, we must also preach the bad. You hear that? You see, the great irony and paradox is this. If you only, if we only at PCC from this pulpit, highlight and emphasize and focus on the good points, grace, love, and the rest, guess what? We'll end up obscuring them, diminishing them. Why? Because I've said so many times before, it's the black cloth that makes the diamond ring stand out all the more beautifully and attractively, right? And so in summary, it's the bad news that makes the good news so good. You see? And so this is why we need to believe in hell. This is why we need to tell others about it, because we don't want to stuff up or screw up this gospel eco ecosystem. None of us want to do that. We don't want to hide the beauty of Christ from people, do we? No, no. And that's why we need to maintain the ecosystem, this gospel, this balance, these things that hold together. And so that's the why. That's the why why we need to believe in hell, why we need to tell others lovingly, patiently, honestly, gently about hell. Which takes us to the what. The what question. What are we going to communicate to others? What are we supposed to believe about hell? When you boil down the Bible, the New Testament in particular, we realize
summarize and see that the New Testament says three main themes about hell. Three depictions of hell. Three pictures of hell. Three images of hell. And the important thing, as we're going to see, we, we, we have to keep these images in balance. All right? Because we will find ourselves in unbiblical waters, uncharted waters, if we don't maintain a balance here. So, number one, three pictures of hell. Number one, punishment. Punishment. Hell is a place of punishment. And what's alarming is that every New Testament writer emphasizes this point. Every single one. And what may shock you and even surprise you is that the one who emphasizes this most is Jesus Christ himself, our Lord. And so we find in our text, which is a summary passage that, 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 that contains each of these images of hell, look at, look at what he says, Paul, in verse 8. He says, he, God, that is at Christ's coming, will punish, will punish, will punish those who do not know God. They don't treasure God. They don't find their joy in God, but in other things. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'd rather live to themselves than respond to his loving, gracious invitation in the gospel. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. When we pull together everything the New Testament says, all the authors say about hell, we discover the following four things about hell as a place of punishment. Number one, hell's punishment is deserved. It's deserved. Look at our text, verse 5. It says God's judgment is right. Verse 6, God is just. That is, he's fair. He's not cruel. He's not harsh. That's what I struggled with as a new Christian. It seems so wrong. It seems so unfair. It seems so cruel. But then I came to see God and his beauty and his glory and his holiness and his majesty. And I, and I came to see my sin and other people's sin as really, really evil and wicked. And then I came to see that hell is horrifying, yes, but not unfair, not harsh. It is deserved. It's, it's deserved. After all, we, we've got to realize that the one doing the judging, listen, has now pierced hands. He has now pierced hands. We, we speak of grace and love. He, he, he came into the world not to condemn the world, we hear in John 3, but to save the world. And, and this one, this Christ, he'll be doing the judging. And he's the most fair of all. Amen? And so the judgment then, the punishment that people will experience in hell must be deserved, must be deserved. Secondly, hell's punishment is painful. It's painful. Again, Jesus highlights this. He, he says that the pain and the suffering in hell will be excruciating. It will be psychological. It will be physical. It will be emotional torment. Jesus highlights this again and again in the gospel. He says being in hell is worse than drowning in the deepest ocean. He says being in hell is more painful than having your arm chopped off or your eye gouged out. I cannot imagine the pain of having your eye ripped out from its socket. And yet Jesus says that's nothing. That's a flea bite compared to the pain and suffering in hell. He also says hell's fire is eternal. In other words, it's worse than being burnt at the stake. Because even if you are burnt at the stake, it's only temporal until your nerve endings shrivel up and die. And yet Jesus says in, in hell, Matthew 25, 41, well, those fires would be eternal. It would be painful. It would be full of suffering. 
tragic, devastating. And then he goes on to say that hell's punishment is also conscious. He says, those in hell will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. They'll be well aware of their misery, well aware of their pain. There's no way out of it. And lastly, fourthly, this punishment, hell's punishment, most scary of all, terrifying of all, is eternal. Eternal. Jesus highlights this again and again. He talks about eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41. He talks about those who are cast into hell, Matthew 25, 46, will experience everlasting punishment. There's no court of appeal in hell. No second chance. That's it. Revelation 14, 1 says that those in hell will never, ever experience rest, night, or day. Sobering. Sobering. Alarming. This is why we need to consider the plight of those around us. So that's the first thing the New Testament says about hell. It's a place of punishment, but there's something else that we need to add to the picture. It's a devastating picture. It's also a place of destruction. A place of destruction. Again, verse 9, now text. They will be punished, says Paul, with everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, the reason why I said just a moment ago that we need to hold these things in the balance is because of this particular aspect of hell. Some theologians, some scholars have jumped on texts like these and said, you see, hell's not eternal. All right? It's just temporal. Because they use the term destruction in the Greek, apoleia. Apoleia in the Greek. It means to destroy something. And, and of course, we understand what that means. It, it means that something ceases to exist, right? That's what destruction means. And so those who espouse this say, you see, the, the Bible teaches annihilationism, that, that hell is not eternal. But we've just seen from the lips of Jesus that hell is eternal. And so how do we make sense of this apoleia, destruction? In the Bible, it often uses this term apoleia to mean loss. It refers to loss or corruption or waste or ruin. And so, for example... In Mark chapter 14, we get this scenario, this scene. Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, and his disciples have tagged along, as they always do in the Gospels. And they're there in the house, and all of a sudden, as they're eating dinner, this woman bursts into the room, and she has this expensive jar of perfume, and she cracks it open like a corona, and she pours it on Jesus' head. Uh, and the disciples, well, obviously they smell the aroma and they have just seen and witnessed the act and they say these words, quote, why this waste of perfume? Why this apoleia, this destruction, this ruin, this loss of perfume? Now, what's the point? The point is that perfume still existed, right? After it was emptied. The, the point is they considered that to be a waste. Waste. Oh, we should have sold it, you know, give the money to the poor. And Jesus has to intervene and protect the woman and say, you're, you're being narrow-minded, you're being ignorant. She's done a wonderful thing. You see, apoleia, a waste, a corruption. It still existed on Jesus' head and on the floor. It hadn't ceased to exist. And you see, when you apply apoleia to hell, it means that those who are in hell will be in a state of ruin forever. A state of loss. A state of corruption. In other words, they had wasted their lives pursuing
other things, instead of finding their joy and satisfaction in the smile of God and in the heart of God, they sought out gods for themselves, career, family, pleasure, entertainment, you name it. They sought it. And the result is, well, that's idolatry, and that's a crime against Almighty God. That's high treason against the divine. And so they experience everlasting ruin forever and ever. And so that's the second image that we get in the New Testament. So punishment, destruction. I know, by the way, I know this is not easy. I acknowledge that. It's not easy. But I, but I pray that something is happening inside of your heart as you think about that lady on the train that you sit next to on, the, on your way to work, to the seat, and your fellow student and, and whatnot, or your neighbors, your family members, the people. Oh, this is their plight. This is their plight. It is. It is. Outside of Jesus, it's their plight. Thirdly, lastly, hell is depicted in the New Testament as a place of banishment or exclusion. Again, in our text, Paul says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And listen to what he says. Listen to the term. And shut out. Shut out. Excluded. Banished, in other words. From whom or from what? From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, again, Jesus highlights this aspect of hell in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew. And so at the end, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, um, on that day, people will come to me and I'll say to them, away from me. And then at the end, Matthew 25, a chapter all about the judgment, he he will say to those um, who haven't lived for him, they've been self-righteous in their religion, they've been hypocrites, They've lived irreligious lives as well. He will say, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Away, depart. Get out of my presence, in other words. Get out of my sight, in other words. You see, brothers and sisters, this is why hell will be so devastating. Because as we're told in Psalm 16, verse 11, that in God's presence, there is what? There's fullness of joy. And there's pleasures forevermore. And yet in hell, the presence of God won't be there. They'll be forever banished from the presence of God, meaning they'll be forever uh, banished from pleasure, from joy. Some have claimed that hell is in the here and now, right? You've heard that. Oh, oh, this life is hell. L- listen, even though some people's lives are miserable in their heart, there, there is still much cause for comfort in this life. Even, even going through hard times, there's a friend you can turn to. There's, there's, a, there's a hobby you can do to make you feel better. You know? but, but those things are absent in hell. Because God's blessing, God's common grace, will be forever removed from hell. And people will be shut out, and they will know that they have been shut out forever from the presence of God. Again, no court of appeal, no going back, no second chance. But everlasting banishment, everlasting destruction and ruin and waste, and everlasting punishment. That's the what. That's the what. That's what the Bible teaches and tells us about hell, which, which helps you see, I hope, the reason why we need to believe in it and the reason why we need to tell others lovingly and patiently about its devastating realities, eternal realities. So that takes us lastly to the how. The how. How do we actually tell others about hell, more importantly, about hell's failure? The Savior, the one who wants to rescue people from hell, the one who came not to condemn but to rescue. How, how do we tell people in our day and age, in this 
environment, in this culture, in this setting in Australia that is so diverse, so many ideas and philosophies and beliefs. How do we do that? Is that your question? He's like, yeah, well, tell me, please. Okay, okay. This will be basic, but I trust helpful. Uh, this whole year, 2017, we're going to flesh this out as we consider witness in the workplace and being a good steward of your work and faith and work and as we consider about being witnesses in our community and so forth. So this is just quite uh, basic, but I trust helpful. As we spend our lives here on planet Earth seeking to witness to those who Christ is drawing us to, we need to remember something, one important thing. Those in our Australian setting and uh, culture generally, generally speaking, broadly speaking, will fall into one of two camps or groups, all right? And sometimes there's a bit of merging because, well, you know, Australia is a melting pot of ideas and philosophies. But largely speaking, the person that you're seeking to engage with the love of Christ will fall into one of these two camps. And I mean that respectfully. We're talking about human beings made in the image of God. We're not talking about a case study, all right? We're talking about humans. But to make it intelligible and helpful for you, they will fall into one of these two groups. So the traditional group, or those from a traditional background with a traditional mindset, traditionalists. And, and, and secondly, those from a secular background, mindset, right? postmodern, we call them, right? postmodern. So, so the traditional, those from a traditional mindset, they have a belief in God. They normally, they normally come from strong church backgrounds. Doesn't mean they're going to church or they're loving Jesus, but they, they come from strong church backgrounds, Catholics, Protestants. Uh, normally, uh, they, they're, they're first generation migrants as well from non European countries. They're traditional and they tend to be older. They tend to be older. They, they, they tend to have a strong moral compass. They, they, they know what's right and they have a sense, an obligation to do what is right. They want to be good citizens. So that they have an idea of, of, of right and wrong. And so when you're seeking to witness to people from a traditional background, what you need to show them, of course, is that their morality and their goodness is not good enough. That they need a savior. And of course, the way you do that, you, you, you help them see uh, the perfection of God. The standards of God. Romans 3 tells us about the law. It, it makes us aware of sin and they will understand that. Because they have a concept of right and wrong, yeah? And so you, you, you try and help them and you prayerfully uh, uh, tell them about these things gently and, and you, maybe you turn to the golden rule. You know, do unto others, treat others how you yourself want to be treated. And you may say to them, okay, go and test that out. Try, try and live that out. Yeah? Serve others, love others with the same energy, intensity and faithfulness that you love and serve yourself. And they'll probably say to you, after 12 minutes, I can't do that. Exactly. That's the standard of God. It's the law of God. And it reveals that we are all fallen. We're all liable to judgment. And then, this is an important point, important key part. You've got to help them move. Listen to me. Help them move from a place of fear, I don't want to go to hell, to a place of gratitude. And you do that by helping them see that on the cross, Jesus experienced their hell. He was punished. He was ruined on the cross. He was banished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for them? 
so that they would never be banished, but only be accepted and, and loved and brought into the family of God. You see, you've got to melt their hearts with the truth of the gospel. It's not enough just to make them afraid. They've got to be drawn to the beauty of Jesus. The bad news makes the good news look ever so good. Amen? That's what you do prayerfully, lovingly, patiently. Don't go hammering people over their heads. All right? It's not going to make friends. It's going to make enemies. That's, your, that's, that's how you do it with, with those from a traditional background. Okay, secondly, what about those from a postmodern worldview, with a postmodern worldview, secularist? Listen, that first approach, the traditional approach, the approach actually we often use in churches is not going to work with them. It's not going to apply to them. It's not going to gain traction. Why? Because those notions, those concepts of right and wrong, they just don't cut it with them because those with a postmodern mindset, they have a suspicion of moral absolutes. They have a suspicion. And they champion what? What do they champion? Tolerance. It's like, I, I got my truth, you've got your truth, they've got their truth. Why can't we just get along, for crying out loud? Why don't we, why don't we be a little more tolerant? Stop being so dogmatic, so narrow-minded, and so, so religious with all those moral absolutes. Yeah? That, that's how they think. And also, those who are postmodern, they, they, they pursue their dreams with passion. They're all about freedom. Free, we, we're into freedom, and often um, those from this background, that's why they get involved in political causes and social justice, because, because they want to matter in life. They want to do something of significance, and so they gravitate towards those various things. Now, so if, you, if the Lord leads you to someone with a postmodern mindset, generally, again, they tend to be younger. They tend to be from educated urban areas, Surrey Hills, Alexandra, Newtown, <laughs> Kellyville. <laughs> Zero also said that for Charles. They tend to be younger. Uh, they, they tend to uh, be from European countries as well. Nominal church backgrounds, or no background at all. They have a vague concept of the divine. It's more like Star Wars. It's like the Force. It's kind of, it's kind of out there somewhere floating around. So what do you do with, 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 with people like that? You want to love them for Christ. How, how, how? Well, look, listen. Just telling them about sin being about breaking God's rules, not living up to the rules, won't cut it with them. And so you need to try and help them see that sin is something that is a power that will imprison them, enslave them. So I've, I've got it written down here because I don't want to get this wrong at all. Where are we? Here we go. We need to help them see that sin is not just failing to play by the rules of God, but also, listen, also building our life's meaning on anything, even good things, other than God, which results in slavery. And so their, their passion is about freedom. And what you need to try and help them see is that their pursuit of freedom ends up in slavery. Slavery. Again, Tim Keller says these words on this. He says, we were built, listen, we were built to live for God supremely. But instead, we live for love, relationships, sex. We live for work, career. We live for achievement or morality to give us meaning and worth. Thus, every person, religious or not, is worshipping something to get their worth, to find their identity, to give them a reason for living, their justification for their existence, in other words. But these things, he says, 
enslave us with guilt. How so? If we fail to attain them, I should have done better. I should have performed well, but I didn't. I feel guilty. I've, 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 I've uh, abandoned my parents or whoever. They're trying to gain approval from other people and themselves. Or anger, he says, if someone blocks them from us. Or fear, if they are threatened. Or drivenness, since we must have them, that career, that education, that particular pursuit. I've got I to gotta have that because my identity is found in that particular thing. Guilt, anger, fear, and drivenness, says Keller, are like fire that destroys. And they will keep people enslaved all the way to hell if they don't see the power of sin that it is about idolatry and it keeps them imprisoned. Sin, he says in closing, is worshipping anything but Jesus and the wages of sin is slavery. And so lovingly, we will seek to help them see those things and then point them to Christ and introduce them to the gospel. So on the cross, Jesus came. He died as the idolater. He died enslaved on the cross. He took the chains. He, he took it all on the cross. Why? To liberate you, to give you a true identity found in him, to give you true justification. Don't ever view the doctrine of justification just as a theological term. Every single person on the planet is seeking justification in particular, in something. A, 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 a substitute savior and they need to see that those things amount to nothing and they will leave their hearts empty and only Christ can fill their hearts with joy and he's the only master that will never terrorize them or bully them or kick them and push them around because he's a lover of their souls and he says come to me, come to me and I will give you rest for your weary souls. Can you see? So just going to set that up. In closing, Think ahead of time. Wow, that's a miracle. I was going to say 30 seconds, so three minutes now. 30 seconds. Brothers and sisters, this is serious stuff. I don't have to tell you that you know that. Thinking about hell. We've always got to keep before us the plight of those around us. We've always got to keep before us the plight of those around us. Life, as I've said many times, is not a cruise liner. It's a battleship. And we've got people in our circles of influence they don't know Jesus. And they're heading to hell. John 3 says they're under the condemnation of God. They're under the wrath of God. But Christ came to save them. And guess who's gonna, he's going to use? You. And me. With our flaws and our imperfections and our fears. And our doubts and our concerns, he's going to use you. Don't question God's ability to use you. Moses did that, and he got rebuked for that. Jeremiah did that. I'm too young. He got rebuked for that. Gideon, oh, who am I? He got rebuked for that. You get the point? You are God's ambassador. He is making his appeal through you. Through you. And, and if you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is so complex, philosophical, how can I do this? Well, well, come and see me and we can talk about it and point you in the right direction, give you some resources and blah, 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 blah. But also there's Alpha this year. Maybe, maybe all you can do, and if you only do this, this is awesome. I, con- I congratulate you. If you can only do this, come and see. Right, come and see. In the, in the Gospels, I said 30 seconds, I've still got two minutes, I'm going a little long, right? Another idea. 
In the Gospels, we have John the Baptist. He's kind of out there, like really out there with a big beard and he likes honey and all that. And but then in the very next chapter in Luke's Gospel, we, we've got others, Nathaniel, Philip. What do they do? They, they, just, they just say, come and see. They're not out there. They're not boisterous. They're not all that courageous. But they just say, hey, come and see. Come and see the Savior. Come and see. And if that's you, that's awesome. Just come and see. Look, we're running Alpha. Alpha is just that. It's come and see. They'll understand these things, hopefully, prayerfully more clearly. And come to Jesus. Amen? Come on, come on. Let's ever plead before us the plight of those around us. Let's bear.